going to ask you to open your Bibles to Revelation chapter 2. We're now coming to the third of the seven churches in Rome. And so join me, if you would, there in Revelation chapter 2, verses 12 to 17. And do listen as I read God's word, then we will pray and really dig into this to consider it together. To the angel of the church in Pergamum write, The words of him who has the sharp two-edged sword. I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. Yet you hold fast to my name, and you did not deny my faith. Even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was killed among you, where Satan dwells. But I have a few things against you. You have some there who hold the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel so that they might eat food, sacrifice to idols, and practice sexual immorality. So also you have some who hold to the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Therefore, repent. If not, I will come to you soon. And war against them with the sword of my mouth. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will give some of the hidden manna. And I will give a white stone with a new name written on the stone that no one knows except the one who receives it. Let us pray. Lord God, we do look to you. At this time, when we open your word, we always want that in every aspect of what we do, that we worship you in truth and in spirit. We pray that as we carefully consider the selection of songs and as, as we sing those truths that resonate with your word, Lord, we pray that our songs were a pleasing offering to you. Lord, we pray that you'd continue to teach us uh, new songs and help us to grow in our expression of love and worship. Lord, our desire is to always worship you in spirit and in truth. And Lord, we thank you that you have given us your word of truth that we might know you and that we might be protected from all the error and all the deceptions of men that come in the world. Lord, we thank you for the truth that not only reveals to us the things that we ought to believe, but reminds us of how we ought to live. And we just ask God that as we consider this section of scripture today, that you would, by your spirit, really impress it upon our hearts, that we would receive your word in its fullness, and it would have an effect to bring change and to bring transformation, to humble us, to draw us near to you. And to grow us and transform us into the image of your perfect and blessed son, Jesus Christ. In whose name we pray. Amen. All right, as we now take up this church, Pergamum. Now, since the first church that we looked at was Ephesus, I was pretty sure that was a familiar city to most of us. Because we're familiar with our New Testaments and we have the book of Ephesians. Then we went to Smyrna, and that was something a little less known, a little less familiar. And the, the beauty that we saw concerning Smyrna is unlike many of the churches, Smyrna was one of those two, Smyrna and Philadelphia. 
that Jesus Christ, the head of the church, has no correction or condemnation. No call to repentance. Only approval. Only encouragement. What's, what's interesting in some of the other churches, there are words of encouragement that are followed with words of correction. Sometimes it's just plain correction as well. And as we look at this, I think it's important for us to also consider this. These letters, as we see them, they are all together written in exactly the same book. It's to the letter to the church at Ephesus, the letter to the church at Smyrna, the letter to the church at Pergamum. Yet, it's not a, a little letter that goes to them, a little letter that goes to them, a little letter that goes to them. They're all written in the book of the Revelation. With a whole lot more. So it's not unlike what we see in the scriptures. When, when Paul did write to the church at Ephesus. Towards the end of there. He says see that this letter is also read. Among the Laodiceans. And see also that you read the letter that was written to the Laodiceans. So there's value. Even to the churches that are commended. To recognize the stumblings. That other churches are doing. Not, not for the purposes of just simply condemning them. Oh, can you believe what that judge is doing? Not for that, but more for the idea of saying, we ought to be careful. These are the kinds of things that cause churches to stumble. Churches that can be faithful and earnest in certain areas, and yet, yet then, like the church at Ephesus, lose sight of their first love. Or like the church today, lose sight of the necessary integrity, holiness, and separation that we must have from the world around us. So as, as we take up this one, it is written to the church in Pergamum. Now, just to share a little bit about this church, to fill in a few of the pieces. Uh, the first piece, and I think the most important ones that we get, the best data that we receive, that which is most essential to our understanding of any passage, is that which is given to us by the Spirit himself. We'll consider a few historical things about that city. But the most significant thing we ought to note about it is it says this, and, and we're going to focus on this in a little bit. Verse 13 says, I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. The end of verse 13 says, where Satan dwells. Oh, that is very strong language, isn't it? Where Satan's throne is, where Satan dwells. That's not a place any of us want to be, is it? So undesirable. And, and part of the reason why is like Ephesus, Pergamum was a city that was steeped in idolatry. It had a ridiculous number of temples. It was one of the areas that was central to emperor worship. We're aware that in the days of, of the New Testament saints, the, the person who was Caesar began to think of himself not merely as a ruler of men, but so swelled within himself that he thought of himself as a god, as one that men and gods should listen to. 
They were not monotheistic, committed to one God. So Caesar became one among many gods and in, in his own mind, the supreme among them. And, and things began to happen even in that age of society. And it happens in various pagan cultures where even forms of greeting take on religious elements. And just normal greetings, whereas we say, hello, how are you? Their normal greetings would often include a phrase or a blessing of their god or gods. And then the response would also respond back, also exalting that god or gods. You know, for example, someone might say, as an example, you know, all praise to Caesar as a greeting. To which you would, you would reply, Caesar is Lord. Which would not be something that the believers were ready to do. The believers would, their, their tendency would be, Christ is Lord. He alone is Lord. There is no Lord but Him. And so in a society like this, where it is the seat of emperor worship, where they have a temple to Augustus, and they have a temple to a goddess Roma, and a bunch of other temples, a, to a, a, a temple to uh, um, Asclepes, which was one of the early gods of healing. And they even had a the first medical university in history was supposed to be in Pergamum. And they had a 200,000 volume library. So it was the seat of, of religiousness and education and knowledge. I tell you, a couple of very, very dangerous things left in the hands of men is spirituality and knowledge. Men left to those things, and as they begin to swell in their perception of things unseen, it's filled with lies. It's filled with deceit. As they swell in a confidence of what they know and how their knowledge exceeds the knowledge of those around them, they're not ready to submit to that perfect and pure knowledge that is from above. And so it was an exceedingly dark and dismal place spiritually. Into that, with the commitment to, to paganism and the pride that would well up in terms of knowledge, this is where Satan's throne is. It's important to note this. It also says where Satan dwells. Now, whether we want to play, whether it's physical or, 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 or spiritual or symbolic, note this. Satan is not a second god. He's not the evil god, whereas uh, the true god is, is the good god. And the good god's a little better than the bad god, a little more powerful. That's not how it is. Dualism is not a right understanding. There is one god. The one we refer to as Satan is merely a created being. He is one of the angels that was not elect, that rebelled against God in pride and is fallen. 
we have a sense that there is one among them, even as the angels themselves are characterized by various hierarchies where you have an archangel and you have various other angels with specific responsibilities. The scriptures do seem to allude strongly to the notion that Satan, a specific of the fallen angels, is sort of like an arch fallen angel among them. He's the one who, who is most at enmity and who is devising the schemes and patterns to attack. That's why Paul says we're not unaware of the schemes of the devil. We don't want to be unaware. The devil is real. It's not just in scripture used as an analogy or an embodiment of evil. Evil exists. Evil indeed grips the heart of every child of Adam that's born into this world. Born condemned, born under Adam. In, but the, uh, Satan himself is a real individual fallen angel. Going about like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. And he's going to set himself in a place where he thinks he can have most influence. Pergamum was the place he saw. And it's stated as Satan's throne because it was a place where people did what he wanted. He had profound and powerful sway in that community and among those people. Where he dwells. That's where he inhabits and spends a great deal of his time. Satan's throne, that is a scary thought, isn't it? To the world, that ought to be a scary thought. Let me tell you what ought to be a scarier thought. This is what it says as we, as we read this section. Verse 12 says this. The words of him who has the sharp two-edged sword, I know where you live. Oh boy. <laughs> so the... The Christ it's spoken of here. And, and again, I think sometimes when we, it's, it's good for us to give pause. Most people don't like to think of Jesus in terms as one who wields a sword in judgment. We, we prefer our own images and, and our own views. And we do see some wonderful and remarkable examples and instructions throughout the life of Christ as to his astounding patience with sinful men. As to his exceeding compassion with wicked practitioners of sin. We also see the scriptures refer to him and his great meekness. We see the way that he also received mistreatment and even submitted himself to the suffering of the cross. And so sometimes in our mind, those glorious truths of Christ's compassion, his patience, and his meekness, which never should be forgotten, never should be left off. But sometimes those are the only things we see. And we don't realize the scripture also says he is coming again to judge the living and the dead. Reminded of some of those descriptions in chapter 1 where his eyes are like flaming fire. Where there, this sword, two-edged sword, comes out of his mouth. 
I mean, th- th- these are not things to be taken lightly. And I think that there is a tendency, and I hope it won't be ours, of the world at large to so enjoy the sweetness of the love of God and the love of Christ, the mercy, the patience, the compassion, the forgiveness, that they play soft and loose and light with the fact that he's judge. And that the scriptures reassert over and over again in the New Testament, as we even considered earlier this morning, in the book of Romans as well as in the book of Hebrews, vengeance is mine, says the Lord. I will repay. And the world keeps saying to themselves, he won't repay. He won't. He's he's merciful. He's patient. He is patient. He's slow to anger. Note this again. As you read through your Old Testament, and I encourage you to read the whole of Scriptures. As you read through it, the Scriptures remind us of how God is slow to anger. And you see that again and again. But if you keep reading, slow to anger does not mean no to anger. He's slow, but when his anger is kindled... The earth will open up and swallow people whole. When his anger is kindled, fire will well up around the outskirts of the camp and consume people. When he's angry in the midst of their feasting, he will pour out a plague on them. In the midst of their sinfulness, he'll send fiery serpents among them. Oh, that men would not take lightly the judgment and anger and wrath of God. We do live in a need for the recovery of the whole of God. But I would urge, as we look to recover, a a God who is justly angry, and a God who pours out his wrath, and a God who brings all men to judgment, that we don't also forget his mercy. And his compassion and his love. Let's not let the pendulum swing from the excess of the imbalance of society today over to the other side in an attempt to correct it. Let's do our best to glory in all of it. And for us especially to recognize that these glorious benefits with regard to how they touch us eternally whether it is the the love, the mercy, the compassion, the forgiveness, all of that comes to us exclusively through the mediation and the person of Jesus Christ. There is no forgiveness of sin apart from Christ. There there is no hope. Uh, the, The great love that he has towards us are those who are adopted in the beloved that we will be called the children of God. And we don't, when we don't understand that the eternal experience of these most excellent and encouraging attributes comes to us through the Son who was sent for us, if we miss that, we miss it all. And sometimes what breaks my heart is we're so thankful for mercy, compassion, forgiveness, and love. We seem to love those things more than we love the one who has provided those things for us. 
We have to love our God. We have to love our Savior. And we glory in those benefits because they are bestowals and and presentations of who he is in his being. And the wonderful eternal purposes of his heart toward us. Oh, oh, we are a blessed people when we think of it like that. And uh, so when we take this up, they are dwelling in a place referred to by Christ as Satan's throne. Not a place any of you would want to live. Probably not a place many believers are intentionally moving to. But those who are already there. And those who are living there. That's where their families are. That's where their businesses are. That's where their life has always been. They are continuing to live there. And they're facing those problems. They're facing persecution. And for us to understand the degree of persecution that this church was facing, it it swelled to the point last week, it wasn't mentioned in the passage when we looked at Smyrna. Smyrna is the city that generally uh, some famous historic martyrdoms, the martyrdom of Polycarp, took place. Here in this church also, specifically in the text, it says Antipas was faithful to death. I mean, that is a significant thing. The previous church was being warned, you need to be faithful unto death. You're going to be put in prison and many of you are going to be put to death. Here in this, in this church, there is someone who all of them knew. And you want to know what sometimes is fun about this, at least to me? I don't know anything about Antipas. I have no idea of his parents. I have no idea of his background. I have no details of his conversion. I don't know of his role in the church. He wasn't necessarily a great church leader or a great church bishop. He could have been simply, you know, a faithful, humble man serving in gloriously simple ways. I mean, one of the challenges sometimes that happens, we we look back on, on some of the wonderful, challenging mission statements of men such as William Carey, who said things like this, um, attempt great things for God and expect great things from God. I'm here to urge you this. Don't only attempt great things for God. Attempt small things for God. Attempt ordinary things for God. Attempt simple and mundane things for God. Let it be that even when you eat and drink, which is pretty basic to our daily experience, let even that be done in the name of the Lord. Let even that be done for His glory. I mean, I think sometimes it gets in our minds, someday, somewhere, somehow, I'll do something great. Stop pointing to the day of future greatness and let today be a day of earnest faithfulness. Because what it says here about this man, and it's interesting linguistically, the way that it ties back in, of Antipas. Remember in chapter 1 I had showed uh, showed us briefly that it refers to Christ as the faithful witness in all of our translations. But that actually in the Greek it says the faithful the witness 
Here, it says like this, the faithful of mine, the witness of mine. So Antipas is much like Christ because he is Christ's. We see the ownership pronoun in that my in our translations, my faithful witness. But it's really my faithful, my witness, or my martyr, which can be a witness unto death. He's unwilling to deny. He's unwilling to compromise, unwilling to capitulate. And we see not only are they where Satan's throne is, but we see that this church, like Antipas, is committed to steadfast theology. Where do we see steadfast theology? It says this, they, I know where you dwell. He knows the complications, the persecution, the onslaught of the enemy. And it says this, yet you hold fast to my name. I mean, it's, it's just wonderful to see that phrase. Now again, part of the challenge, we've got, we've got to see certain words in, in the historic context have big, expansive, explosive meanings. Some people refer to them as pregnant words when it, because, because it just gives birth to. But it, sometimes pregnant isn't enough because it's not just one unless it's like octuplets or something because the, the, the ideas just, just build and grow. Uh, to, you have held fast to my name it's not just the barren clinging to a name. A name represented something of significance. And we know this something about uh, somehow historically. There was Abram. And then he was renamed Abraham because he would be the father of many nations. And so his new name reflected the expansive purpose of God's plan for him. We know Jacob now, the change of his name was more significant from Jacob to Israel. And he would be the head of the tribe of Israel and as one who had striven with God and, and, and conquered and had victory, Israel would be that nation that would come from him that would oft strive with God and then through them, the conqueror indeed would come. Right, And so we, we see those things and all those names have uh, various significance. And when, when a child was named Esau, hey, well, why, for us, most of the Old Testament names mean nothing. So we see the name and think, I would never name anybody that. But Esau simply meant reddish. So baby comes out, baby's reddish. I'm going to name this kid Esau. You know, maybe another kid would be whitey. You know, whatever, whatever the, you know, so there could be descriptions. It could be based on something they see or something they anticipate or something they're hoping for or occasions uh, um, in their life. If, if they've had a moment of joy or a moment of laughter, that might be reflected in the, in the child's name. And so the name represents more than just what you call somebody. It represents their being. It represents their character. It represents what they stand for. So to hold to his name is to hold to all that he is. All that he's revealed himself to be unflinchingly, unswervingly. They hold fast. So important is this idea of holding fast that we see it throughout the New Testament. 
1 Corinthians 15.2, the saints there in Corinth are encouraged to hold fast to the word that I preached to you. Are those two different things? Holding fast to my name and holding fast to the word that was preached, the gospel that was preached by an apostle? Those are not two different names. To hold fast to the name of God is to hold fast to all that comes from him. Remember, when we consider the scripture and we consider the word, man does not live by bread alone, but by what? Every word that comes out of the mouth of God or the mouth of the Lord. And so we have that idea and we understand this. So holding fast to God is holding fast to not the God of our imagination, of our society, of our culture, of our religion, but holding fast to the true God as he's made himself known and he has done so in his word. Says further in Philippians chapter 2 verse 16, holding fast to the word of life. In Colossians 2.9, it reminds us that we are to be those who are holding fast to the head. That is Christ. In Hebrews 3.6, it goes on, we are to hold fast to our confession. We are to hold fast to our hope. We are called to constantly hold fast, to cling to something and not let go no matter what. I mean, the picture you get is that you... That Someone is holding on and someone is trying to pull them off. I mean, you can imagine that there, there could be a game, and this was a game that we used to play. It's, it's not much of a game because there's no fun involved in it. But uh, there, would be, there would be these bars at schools. Maybe they've, they've been outlawed now from broken arms and legs, but there used to be bars, monkey bars, and the such. And... Uh, Various students would grab hold of them, and the game was simply this. Who holds on the longest? Last one holding wins. You know, and generally it's not, it's not uncommon that it's the same guy who's winning almost every time. And he often wasn't the strongest in, in any, any way, but there was just... A commitment, I'm not letting go no matter what. But doesn't it start to hurt at some point? Yeah, my forearms are killing. My hands feel like they're blistering. But there's still someone else holding on. So... No. And every, as, as time goes by, what, what begins to happen, uh, people begin to get frustrated. And so th the person who's hanging, a couple more are still hanging. Others walk by and just kind of brush, brush his legs, pushing, to try, just to try to unsettle and create a little bit more tension. Walk by and give a little tug. But no, not letting go, holding fast. I, re I remember those occasions in my mind, and that's kind of the picture. They're trying to peel the person away. I'm not letting go, no matter what. And, and, I, and I remember that, and when all was done, and that individual won, he won nothing. I mean, there wasn't even a prize because it was just kids playing among kids. There wasn't even a reward. There was no name on a board, no gold star, no nothing. We hold fast to the prize, the upward calling in Christ Jesus. I mean, 
how much more motive is there? Such wonderful and encouraging holding fast. But note this. We see a steadfast theology that they would not fail. They would not walk away. But amongst them, there was a stumbling theology. What is the stumbling theology? So as they're, as they're being faithful and as they're not compromising with regard to teaching truth and preaching the gospel and holding to the name of Christ... And even what happens is where Satan's throne is, his attempts to attack them and get them to deny what they believe doesn't work. Even one more thing there from that early verse, verse 13. You did not deny my faith in the days of... So you held fast to my name and you did not deny my faith. Now some footnotes, they say... We'll say, your faith in me. Because that seems to make better English sense. The scriptures don't say that because they're not trying to make good English sense. Trying to make us understand this. The faith that we have, the things that we believe. As Jude says, the faith once for all delivered to the saints. What we are to believe comes from God. From no other place. From no other source. And so you hold fast to his faith. The reason why I'm not going to waver is I know this is true. The reason I know it's true is because he's the source. I mean, who, why would I listen to someone else when his testimony is true? Why would I believe something else when everything he says will prove true? And everyone who differs will ultimately someday prove to be a liar. The stumbling theology, we see it coming there in verse 14. But I have a few things against you. So, so the interesting thing is, when they're, when they're being attacked from the outside, they stood firm. And so here's the enemy's efforts. Attacking the church from the outside, they are uncompromising. So here's what I need to do. Attack the church from the inside. Remember, as Paul warned the church at Ephesus, you know, uh, wolves are going to arise. Dressed like sheep to mislead will arise from among you. Yet you have, and it says this, there are some. You have some who hold to the teaching of Balaam. So, The church has been faithful. Now, Balaam did not necessarily teach people to believe other gods. We know what ended up happening, and we've looked at this not too long ago. Uh, Back in the book of Numbers, it reminds us of this, as Balaam is the one whose donkey spoke to him that time, and he came to curse the children of Israel. But every time he tried to curse them, he had said, I can't say anything but what God gives me. And he blessed them. Every time he went to pronounce a curse, he blessed them. Until the king is like, just stop it. Don't curse them or bless them. Just don't say anything. And, and then, so as he is, is leaving and no longer going to try to pronounce a curse on them, what he ends up 
we've, we learn from later texts in the New Testament, what he ends up explaining to them, and we even learn it from later in, in Numbers, he ended up explaining the only way you're going to get to these people is if you can get them to violate their law, violate their covenant, violate the rules of their God. If you can get them to breach what their God has commanded, yeah, then he who is protecting and preserving them will remove that protection. Your only shot at beating these guys is to get them to compromise. And we know that the way that uh, Balaam had sought to, to develop those compromises is he, they had set up little shops and set, you know, uh, get the women to entice the men and, and to try to seduce them, build relationships with them, get them into immoral relationships, get them wedded. And as they compromise in those ways, to also slowly get them, if not to believe, at least to participate in the things that are going on in the community and culturally. We live in a different era, so it, it, it sometimes is challenging for us to think of, of, of this time. I mean, if you live in the Marshall area, there's lots of different things that happen in this community. There are fire ant festivals, right? There are uh, uh, upcoming, there is a, a taco fest that's coming up. And then there's second Saturdays, and there's all kinds of things that, that show up, but... Uh, when we think of those, at least I, I'm, I'm quite sure, tacos aren't an object of worship. I'm hopeful fire ants are not as well. <laughs> but in this day, in this era, in these societies, all of their festivals, all of their get-togethers, all of their gatherings, they all were laden and laced with paganism. And so the whole idea is, I mean, we need to live in this world, but not be of this world. Well, the Balaamites were saying, yeah, we need to live in this world, not be of the world. But you know what? I mean, you can't, you can't get these kind of treats at home and in the local market. You know, the only place you're going to get a funnel cake is if you go to the state fair or if you, if you go to this event. Because you're not going to get this at home. And so if, by... by separating from the society there are certain benefits and things we enjoyed that now we don't get anymore it's okay to go ahead i mean you're not going to necessarily worship the god but go ahead and head on down to the festival you know get the get the discounted food you know uh, get the uh, the trinkets get those things enjoy it you know let let's Get the benefit of all of those things, but we won't compromise religiously. And what happens is they just go down and they go to these festivals where the drinks are flowing, where things are in abundance, with the commitment to only partially participate. And before you know it, what happens? They're all in. They're caught up in the moment, they're, they're, they're under the influence, and they're all in. Come out from among them, separate from them. We, we live in the world, but we're not to be of the world. And, and the whole goal, the whole mentality ought not to be, um, how much can I do before God will be angry with me? 
I mean, that, that's the way some people approach the, the decisions of life. How, how far can I get? How close to this? How much of this can I be involved with before God will be upset, before he'll be displeased? Instead of saying, how can I please God? How can I bring him glory? How can I bring him pleasure? How can I bring him honor? Instead of a, a commitment that uh, I want to please him, I want to honor him, I want to stay as far away from that. Uh, you know, I, not only do I not care to come up to the line and get as close to it as possible for a little snipsy, I wanna, I'm going to turn away and look away and run away. I don't want compromises. The whole goal isn't how much can I get away with before God will bring me under chastisement. No, it is how much can I please him and honor him and glorify him this day? But the Balaamites were like, hey, push the boundaries of liberty. Push the boundaries of freedom. And in doing that, compromise. In doing that, sin. And the sad thing is they're holding doctrinally still to the right things. They're holding fast to his name. But what are they doing in their life? The scriptures say here the things that they're involved with are, are not small. They put a stumbling block so that they might eat food sacrificed to idols and practice sexual immorality. There are practical moral corruptions that are going on. And people are well, it's okay. As long as you, as long as you believed. Did you walk an aisle? Did you raise a hand? Did you pray a prayer? Don't worry, you're saved. All these other things will be forgiven. Don't worry. Have you heard that kind of stuff? Don't listen to that kind of stuff. That's the influence of Balaam. The influence that you want is Christ is our Lord. Christ is our master. Oh, that we might walk in the footsteps of faith in a manner that's pleasing in his sight. Don't call him Lord, Lord, if you're not going to do what he says. And so the Balaamites were misleading. And then there's also, it says in here, the Nicolaitans. Now, it, it's interesting uh, because the Nicolaitans are mentioned in three different churches. And nobody is sure what the Nicolaitans believed. <laughs> nobody knows exactly what they practiced. And you have the Nicolaitans among you. And so sometimes they blend it, sometimes they blur it. The most likely, now when I say most likely, that means this is not authoritative, Right? Okay. The most likely is that it's potentially also a group that was, uh, that was common among Gnostics. Gnostics were different sects in those days of knowledge. And there would be this tendency to think that my faith and my spiritual life are one thing. My body's just a body. The body's nothing. The body's going to decay. The body's going to be buried. The spirit's the only thing that matters. So the body can basically do anything. Because what I do with my body has no effect on my spirit. The scripture doesn't ever allow for that, does it? I love the way when Jesus is expressing again that first and greatest commandment. What is that first and greatest commandment? You are to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. The glory of God and the truth of the gospel never allows for the seeming divisions and compartmentalizations of our character. Every aspect of the whole man. 
That's the totality of our emotions, the totality of our intellect, the totality of our wishes and ambitions. All of that being guided and constrained and compelled by our supreme love for God. So this is a a tremendous danger. The teachings of Balaam and the Nicolaitans, that it's not acceptable. As it says in 2 Peter 2.15, forsaking the way they've gone astray, they followed the way of Balaam, the son of Beor, who loved gain for wrongdoing. So that adds a little nuance into it too. It's like, well, we don't necessarily need to participate and go there and be a part of that festival, but... I could go up and set up a Coke stand, you know, and, 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 and be there in the midst of all this paganism and all this debauchery. I can be there and make some money. No, don't even be a part of it. It's, it's filthy. It's dirty. There's no value. I mean, it would be like somebody, uh, somebody saying, you know, I, I don't approve of, of immorality and homosexuality, but I know I can make a lot of money selling t-shirts at the gay pride parade. No, no, don't do it. Don't, don't consider those kind of prophets in those games. You don't want to even be seen in that place. You don't want people for a moment to think that you have any agreement, any participation. It's said of those who would go and, and rescue others who have stumbled and fallen, that times you would rescue them, hating even for the fringes of your garments to become filthy. I don't, I don't want to get even a little of that mussy mud on, uh, mud on me. You know, the, the consideration that that wickedness, like vile, disgusting refuse, like a stench I don't want to be around. If I'm around it, and again, it reminds me of those days uh, when I was young, not long ago, there were bowling alleys, which there still are, I know, but bowling alleys seemed to be... Um, in order to have a bowling alley, apparently you had to burn cigarettes 24 hours a day in there until the smell seeps into every crevice in the place to where if you were to walk inside just to use the telephone in the days where you had to go in a place to use a telephone, you would come out after but two minutes and get in the car and People in the car are thinking, what did you just do? Go smoke a pack? You know, because just being in that place, it it, it would stick to you. It was inescapable. Uh, Our thoughts of of wickedness, of debauchery, of compromise, it should be like that. I want no part in it, and I want no proximity to it. Get it out of my presence. Or if you can't get it, out of your presence get out just go false doctrine leads to false worship and wrong practices and that is dangerous and so uh, the concerns uh, uh, in these ideas is we've got to be careful Uh, some some people would say this um, you're saved no matter what you do and just comfort people to do whatever they want to do. And, and others will say, no, no, no. 
you're saved by what you do. And I, I want to just make this clear. You're not saved by what you do. And, and you're also not saved. I mean, you're also, yeah, not saved by what you do. And you're not saved no matter what you do. You're saved by the grace of God. And that salvation changes everything you do. That salvation affects everything you do. You're no longer a slave to sin. You're now a slave to God in righteousness. You're now no longer living in the ignorance of the world and in the fleshly desires. You're now living for the one who came in the flesh and gave himself for you that you might be set free. And when the sun sets you free, you are free indeed from the dominion of sin and freed to live to the glory and pleasure of God for what purpose the called have been created. We see also the sword threatened. Look at verse 16 with me. If not, I mean, if the world would understand this, when God makes a threat, it's not idle. God says, the scriptures say, Jesus is coming again to judge the living and the dead. You know what's going to happen? He's coming. <laughs> and he's going to judge the living and the dead. If he says that those who do not know Christ and those who, who have con continued in their rebellion and sinfulness will be punished in the lake of fire forever and ever, then what's going to happen? Exactly that. Take it seriously. When God, he warns them, he tells them to, that they need to fix this. He need, says, verse 14, therefore, repent. What's interesting is this. The, the church itself, even those who aren't participating, are partly to blame. We let this happen among us. He's not asking only those who uh, are part of the teaching of Balaam and the Nicolaitans to repent. He's asking even those who have allowed these compromises to exist. Well, we're not compromising on what we believe. Well, that's their personal life. I don't want to get involved in their personal. No, no, no. If you love them, get involved in their personal life. Not to kick them, but to lift them up. To come alongside of them and encourage them and assist them. It, 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 your idea is not to push them down and kick them while they're down, but to stoop to them and encourage them and to lift them up to remind them of the judgment that is there. Repent, therefore, all of you. If not, I will come to you soon. Now, that he's coming soon is a strong statement. Now, the encouragement for the faithful is, it says, I will make war with them. The whole church is called to repent, but the specific devastating judgment, the sword of his mouth, is going to come against those who have specifically done that. And so, look, we cannot and ought not tolerate ungodliness and compromise around us. And we need to encourage that and we need to correct that. But we've got to also understand this. We're not going to ultimately be swept away in the sins of those around us. We'll stand before God on the basis of the merits of Christ. And they will be judged on the basis of their sins. And the, the sword will come. And he comes heavy with it. And, and again, 
the way that it's stated in Re- Revelation 1.16, he is the one in his right hand he holds seven stars and from his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword. In Revelation 19, as it's speaking of the second coming, it says from his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. Without going into much elaborate detail, Swords generally are not designed and constructed for tickling, right? Or for comfort. They're not. They're 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 not an uh, they're not an an aid in rest. They're 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 not something of any practical benefit and comfort. A sword is used for war, devastation. Severing things and piercing things. It's used often in the scriptures of devastating, demolishing the nations. Laying low, breaking down, bringing to an end. Not a small thing. And this is the, this is the one who himself was brought to an end for our sake. At the hands of wicked men and bore God's wrath for us. Lastly, I want to show you this, and we're going to close with these, the salvation theme. Look at the salvation theme. He says things like this, I will give you hidden manna. Now again, these things are quite interesting. Manna was what? The bread that God provided from heaven for the children of Israel to eat in the wilderness. But as we read through the scriptures, we see, we remember it, it's not by bread alone, but every word that comes out of the mouth of God. And further than we have Jesus in John chapter 6 saying the, the words of such strength, I am the bread of heaven. God gave that manna for them to eat. But that was all representative and symbolic of me now someone might say well that's not representative and symbolic it actually came down they made it into cakes and they ate it it was real even the real has a deeper representation in the purposes of God and particularly in the person of Christ to the one who conquers, to the one who overcomes, to the one who perseveres in faithfulness, who turns aside, who, who by the grace of God keeps, keeps his doctrine and his life aligned with truth. I will give him hidden manna. He will feed upon Christ. Christ in him, he in Christ. Christ will be his strength. Christ will be his salvation. Christ will be his wisdom. Christ will be his sanctification. God through Christ, through his word by the spirit will continue to cultivate in us all that is necessary for nourishment and strength and perseverance. Not only will I give hidden manna, but it also says this, I will also give them a white stone. Now that's a curious statement, curious phrase, which doesn't make a ton of sense to us. There are two primary uses of white stone at this time in history. So I'm going to run through these really quick so you can get them. One is that a white stone would be given to someone who when they were coming to a wedding or a private event, it was an invitation. And sometimes for the feasts and events of the, of the wealthy and the elite, the ordinary guy can't get in there 
unless he just won an athletic competition. Unless he happened to just publish a play or something that's been appreciated. And so those who had particularly, it was often those who had gone through Olympic type events or athletic events, they could upon success and victory receive a white stone and they get to go and get into the special place that they were otherwise forbidden of. So the white stone can speak of access to a place that we would otherwise be barred entry to. And oh, is that not true concerning the marriage supper of the Lamb, concerning the presence and entrance into heaven, that that would be provided for us, for those who endure and conquer. And remember, it's not our conquering. What conquers, John, 1 John chapter 5, our faith, the grace of God through faith at work within us. The second use of these, in the days of judgment, it could be a judge, or it could be a jury when someone was being declared innocent or guilty. All right, go around. These 12 people are casting judgments. Put the stones in. Put the stones in. Pour them out. Okay. We have eight white stones declaring innocence and only four stones, black stones, declaring guilt. The man is... Free and clear, declared innocent of the charges that were brought against him. So it spoke also of that declared. And so whichever, well, people like to say, which one is the white stone of these traditional uses? Is it access and entry into a place we couldn't enter otherwise? Or is it a declaration of declared righteous, declared pure, declared innocent? I don't want to fight over those. I'm thankful for both of those, and both of those things are things that God has afforded us through Christ alone. Then lastly it says, and I will write on it a new name that no one knows except him who receives it. People have speculated about that name for centuries. Let me tell you what it is. I don't know. And neither does anyone else who has speculated. It's a new name that no one knows except the one who has received it. And the receiving of it was after they had conquered. It's after they are done with these days. So right now I would say I don't know the name that is written on there. I do know this. It is a name that will speak of Christ. It will, name that will, it will be a name that will speak of my union with him, my reception in him. The totality of it, I don't know. Again, we fight over that. Jesus, God who saves, Emmanuel, God with us, the lion, the lamb. We come up with all these terms and phrases. What is this new name? I don't know, but I'm going to. And so are you. If you, by God's grace, persevere and conquer. Don't compromise. Don't listen to the Balaams of this world or any Balaams who get into this church. Worldliness, pleasures of this earth. We don't want excuses to get as much as possible. The scriptures remind us at his right hand, there are pleasures evermore. Nothing you and I deny ourselves in this life is going to be 
that we're going to look out, oh, I missed out on that. Sometimes in, in our earthly lives, we look back at, at things at certain times in our lives and say, you know, um, I, I was nervous and so I didn't do that and I really missed out. My parents were strict and wouldn't allow me, so I really missed out. There are all kinds of, I really missed out, I really missed out. No, you didn't. When we are in the presence of God, experiencing the riches of His glory, there is nothing that the world ever offered that we will look back and say, I only wish I had seen, known, done, or experienced. Nada! Everything in this life is absolutely expendable. And everything in eternity is extraordinarily exceptional. Recognize that. That which is expendable. The world and all that is in it. That which is exceptional. The inheritance he has reserved for those who love him. What wonderful things. This place is Satan's throne. What persecution and what trouble. This church, steadfast theology. They did not waver from his faith. They did not waver from his name. Stumbling theology. Those who would say, yeah, as long as we believe right, it doesn't matter if we dabble a little bit in worldliness and wickedness. No, that's stumbling theology that leads you away from the master. We do not do that. The sword was threatened. Everyone answers to the great and glorious judge. And then the salvation themes of the manna. Christ is our all. The entrance and the innocence that is declared upon us. All because of the one who came and gave himself for us. Is now interceding for us. Is by his spirit at work within us. And someday will be coming to receive us.